Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost series, recorded June 13, 2018, titled Part 5, Life from Non-Life. Well, hey there. Uh, we got a few more minutes till you guys get to experience Genesis, so uh, I need something for you guys to do. Hey, Ralph. Yo. The vision of this film, what are you hoping to accomplish? We're trying to show that the Bible is true, but also the science to yes. back it up. If we're going to have a debate about science, can you please just be honest about it? Apologia presents The Science of Genesis, Paradise Lost. Part 5, Life from Non-Life. If you're new to the series, click on the I in the top corner to watch from the beginning. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. If we're talking about moving creatures, this matches with empirical evidence. The first vertebrates were water-based ancestors of fish, though older than that were single-celled organisms, bacteria and archaea, the first multicellular eukaryotes, and later sponges and jellies. And fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. The earliest fossils of birds appear well after the first land creatures, but the film will take a look at that later. In the meantime, it's confusing that Eric chose to represent the day two firmament as atmosphere, then on day four the firmament was outer space, now the firmament is back to being the sky where birds fly. And God created great whales. As you know, whales are mammals. Again, the empirical evidence shows that whales and dolphins are the descendants of land mammals. For a theistic evolutionist, the ordering of whales and birds here is a challenge to explain. And every winged fowl after his kind. The film uses the King James Version of the Bible, which uses the phrase winged fowl. Fowl specifically refers to the birds in the Galloansary clade, like chickens, turkeys, and ducks. Other English translations of Genesis use winged birds. But Eric's film goes even further, interpreting fowl to include winged reptiles like tyrannosaurs. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. As you'd expect, the movie's day five discussion begins with the origin of life. In science, the origin of life is called abiogenesis, and has prompted a field of science called prebiotic chemistry. Unfortunately, the presenters either deliberately or incidentally mistake the process of abiogenesis, a question about chemical interactions, as a part of evolution, which is merely the study of the diversification of life after it existed. To say that abiogenesis is a part of evolution is no different than saying that farming is a part of baking, or mining for copper is a part of iPhone manufacturing or that pig butchering is a part of NFL football. Louis Pasteur proved spontaneous generation wasn't true. Prior to 1862, it was commonly held that some kind of vital principle in the air could create complex life where there was none before. Maggots appearing in dead flesh or fleas appearing in dust lent credence to the idea of spontaneous generation. This may seem silly now, 
but it was an understandable idea at the time. Louis Pasteur designed the Swan Neck Flask experiment, which exposed boiled broth to the air, but his custom apparatus prevented dust and bacteria from reaching the liquid. When nothing grew in the broth, Pasteur effectively killed the idea of spontaneous generation. But all evolutionists, every evolutionist believes in spontaneous generation of life. Absolute words like all, every, and never should be used with caution, as they can undermine the idea you're trying to present and can be overturned with a single counterexample. As we've discussed, there are millions of Christians around the world who accept evolution, and many of those contend that the first life was an intervention by God. A belief in a naturalistic origin of life isn't required to accept evolution. This whole evolutionary concept that life came from non-life, it actually violates a law of science. It is one of the only laws in biology. It's called the law of biogenesis. The very notion of laws in biology is hotly contested in the field, where principles that are occasionally informally labeled as laws are really more like patterns or generalizations. This phenomenon was studied in 2010 by Pawan Dahar and Alessandro Giuliani, affirming that the unique characteristics of biology make it less conducive to absolute principles than the harder sciences like chemistry and physics. Even the most solid biological observation, Mendelian inheritance, has known exceptions. So the scientific notion of a law, observations for which no exceptions have been found, just doesn't really apply here. As such, a search for the phrase law of biogenesis will return results almost exclusively from creationist sources that have a motivation to overstate and exaggerate the case. For biologists, the notion of laws is rarely applied. The instant mouse notion of spontaneous generation is so far in our past that it just isn't referenced in scientific literature any more than meteorologists write about lightning from Thor's hammer. It says that life comes from life, not non-life. That was meant to debunk the notion that an unattended bag of rice would create mice where there was no mice before. It refutes exactly the kind of instantaneous appearance illustrated in 3D in the previous scene. So it's an odd choice to talk about here. The idea of spontaneous generation is in direct contrast with the idea of abiogenesis, which refers to the eventual natural formation of the basic chemicals that form organic compounds necessary for life. The law of biogenesis that says all life comes from pre-existing life, and yet evolution says that life can come from non-life. Surprise, if you just wait long enough. As mentioned before, evolution doesn't say anything at all about the origin of life. So it's too bad he keeps repeating this misunderstanding. And what Charles is saying is akin to insisting that because a baby will never spontaneously appear in a bed, that there can be no bed-related activity that could eventually lead to the appearance of a baby. One is not actually related to the other. Every evolutionary story starts with the Miller-Urey experiment. And there's a good reason discussion begins with the Miller-Urey experiment, as it was the first major success in prebiotic chemistry. In 1952, Harold Urey and Stanley Miller set out to test the chemical origin of life based on the conditions thought at the time to be those present in the early Earth. They mixed methane, ammonia, hydrogen, and water in a network of flasks connected to a continuous 60,000 volts electrical current. After a week, most of the ammonia and most of the methane had been replaced by carbon monoxide, nitrogen, and amino acids, the building blocks of proteins and essential components of life emerging from natural processes without intervention. And Georgia was right. This experiment was only the beginning, as the experiment has been repeated many times over in the past 60 years. Joan Oro in 1961, Miller's repeat in 1983, 
Jeffrey Bata in 1996, just to name a few, each with variations in the initial chemical makeup to reflect different ideas about Earth's early atmosphere, yet each producing similar results time and time again. Anytime they've done these type of origin of life experiments where they're trying to take a, a soup, so to speak, of all these different molecules, add a little bit of lightning. And Cook everything together, add a spark, and out comes amino acids. That's impressive, ooh. Okay, we'll try it again without the sarcasm. Andrew is trying very hard to use his voice to imply that the audience should be disappointed with these results. In order for DNA and RNA to do their job of making proteins, they need access to the main ingredient for protein, amino acids. If the experiments didn't produce amino acids, they would be absolutely no help in explaining a natural emergence of life. It's not even meaningful information as far as DNA is concerned. Complete modern DNA is likely one of the final steps in the process of the first cell. Starting with the necessary components, like amino acids, is obviously the first step. Would you expect a chef to make an omelette without eggs? Would you expect a blacksmith to make a sword without metal? No manufacturing process can start without first having the raw materials. Georgia seems to think that we should have a printing press before paper and ink. The best yields they've ever gotten was 80% L-amino acids and 20% D-amino acids. That would mean that every fifth amino acid in a protein series would be lethal to all forms of life on our planet. The evolutionists tried to get away from this problem of chirality. When Charles talks about L-amino acids, D-amino acids, and chirality, he's referring to the handedness of a molecule. The term chirality comes from chire, the Greek word for hand. Due to the nature of the structure of their components, some molecules can form in two different ways, each the mirror image of the other. One configuration is dubbed left-handed, or L, Latin lavus for left, and the other configuration right-handed, or D, Latin dexter for right. It is true that most amino acids found in proteins occur in the L configuration. However, the mere existence of D configuration molecules is not deadly or dangerous, as you might infer from Charles' statement, for example, sugars in DNA use deconfiguration, and life continues to go on. Unfortunately, in order for a complex chemical structure like DNA to be stable, it must be purely homochiral, all the same handedness. Inorganic chemistry, a mixture of 50% L and 50% D is called a race mate. In the manufacture of drugs or other compounds, these need to be separated. And fortunately, the different configurations react differently when exposed to other chiral phenomenon. Typically, the organic chemist will use a ready-made homochiral substance from a living organism. But there would be no living organisms in existence to utilize before the origin of life. There are other known mechanisms that can potentially induce homochirality. Circularly polarized ultraviolet light, beta decay, quartz powders, clay minerals, magnetic fields, and... The best they've been able to do is the idea that the amino acids assembled themselves on the backs of floating crystals in the ocean. What's with the little sing-song mockery when Charles says, floating crystals? Do I detect a note of sarcasm? Are you kidding me? This baby is off the charts. Why? <laughs> oh, a sarcasm detector. Well, that's a really useful invention. The movie just showed a 3D sequence of a flock of birds materializing mid-flight like they were beamed there from the Enterprise. So I think it would be a little more productive to discuss ideas and scientific merit than engage in belittling voice games. Here's the paper Charles is referring to. 
Of course, it doesn't actually refer to any of the crystals as floating, though it's unclear as to why that would make them less plausible. As shown in the study, crystallization is yet another natural process that can potentially induce homochirality. Far from Charles' flippant characterization of floating on the backs of crystals, researchers simply ran a Miller-Urey-inspired process, but then crystallized the resulting materials. It is well established that minerals act as catalysts in chemical reactions to form complex molecules from simple ones. See this example from Kawamura and Morel from 2017, which is a fascinating read on the chemical evolution of RNA molecules from inorganic material through mineral-mediated RNA. For the record, the amino acids and self-crystallization experiment was highly successful in forming a variety of amino acids in a high ratio of single chirality. The researchers characterized it as having valuable implications for future studies. Their schemes and the things they've tried to imagine just don't work. Even if, one day, scientists are able to go from raw chemicals all the way to cellular life in a single lab experiment, that wouldn't necessarily reflect the way life actually arose on Earth. It would merely demonstrate that such a process is possible. That's all any of these experiments are meant to show. Plausible methods by which chemicals can progress naturally toward life. Science has demonstrated that the first step is plausible, repeatedly demonstrable, and possibly even inevitable. All the remaining steps are quite plausible, even if some of the hurdles may take some time and effort to jump. Not yet knowing the specifics is the start of all scientific inquiry. If you take the cell and you poke a hole in it, you have all the components for the cell and yet no life. If you put a cake in a blender, you'd have all the components of cake and yet no cake. If you put a smartphone under a hydraulic press, you'd have all the components of a smartphone, but no smartphone. Lots of things can be irreparably damaged, but that has nothing to do with whether another can be produced. They'll say, well, that's an origin of life issue, and I'm not going to deal with that. But you have to deal with it, because there's no point in dealing with any of these other things if you cannot even get an organism in the first place. Finally, Georgia understands the separation of abiogenesis and evolution, but her conclusion doesn't make any sense. Is there no point in studying for your driver's test if you don't know everything about how the motor works? Is there no point to watching The Dark Knight? since we don't know for sure the Joker's origin story? Is there no point in getting to know someone if we don't already know their parents? Is everyone studying cancer treatment, wasting their time until we can pinpoint what causes cancer? Of course not. We can, and should, absolutely study the diversity of life, even though we don't yet know everything about the origin of life. Next on the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost, Part 6, Enter the Dinosaur. Tap the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss it. If you'd like to support the work of Polygia, please consider becoming a patron at the link in the description. Thanks for watching.